bow our heads for a word of prayer and ask God to bless us. Father in heaven, thank you again for Sabbath school. Thank you for this time of discussion. And Lord, as we dig deep into the scriptures, may you speak to us. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, take your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Who knows what Matthew chapter 24 is before we get to Matthew 24? It has to do with end time events. Very good, Lorette. It has to do with end time events. Everyone knows this, right? When you go to Matthew 24, what do you find? A litany of end time events that are going to happen. Let's start with Matthew 24 and let's start with verse 3. Matthew 24, starting with verse 3. What time does Sabbath school end, by the way? When? 1045. Very good. Okay. We are going to the book. I thought you said 1025, but I was like, we are now done, everyone. So let's go to the book of Matthew. And we are going to Matthew chapter 24. I need somebody with a loud evangelistic voice to read Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. I will call you out if you don't read. So who's going to read? Who's going to be very bold and very... David, thank you for raising your hand right now. David, could you stand up so everyone can see you? And read Matthew 24 really loud, verse 3. Could you speak a little louder? Very good. Thank you so much, David. By the way, okay, so this is very interesting. They're on top of another mountain, aren't they? Right? And what is the question that the disciples asked to Jesus? Somebody please tell me. Raise your hand. What is the question that the disciples asked Jesus? Don't tell me what the verse just said. I want you to interpret what the verse just said. Okay, what are the signs? Okay, could you reiterate that in your own words? Yes. Very good, very good. Like, what's it going to look like when you come back, right? In fact, if you dissect this a little bit further, they essentially ask three different questions, right? Three different questions. But very good, good summary, right? So what do we find in Matthew 24? We find a grocery list of end time events. You know, when you get to the end of Matthew 24, many times we stop and we say, aha, uh-huh, that's what it looks like at the end of time. However, Jesus wasn't done with the sermon. You see, Matthew 25, Jesus begins to talk more. So what is the difference between Matthew 24 and 25? Matthew 24 is what God is doing in the world at the end of time. Matthew 25 is what God is doing in his people at the end of time. So let's go to Matthew 25. We spend so much time in Matthew 24 that we oftentimes neglect what it says in 25. And that should be more of a focus for us. Matthew 25. And we are going to be taking a good look at a very special parable that Jesus gave at the end of time. Okay, somebody tell me real quickly, what is the purpose of a parable? Raise your hand, I can't, I'm deaf and blind when I get up here. What is the purpose of a parable? Yes. To illustrate, illustrate a sp- spiritual truth. Okay, anybody else? What was the purpose of a parable? Yes. To tell a story people could understand. Anybody else? What is the purpose of a parable? Somebody says, what's a parable? What would you say? Alex, what would you say? <laughs> okay, a short story. Good. Anybody else? What's a parable? Do you have a microphone? Brother, you speak really good. Go ahead, finish your thought.
a real life experience with the spiritual truth, right? Very good. Some of what you guys had said before, right? Jesus essentially gave parables for two reasons. Number one, to reveal truth. And number two, to conceal truth. To reveal truth to those who were searching and were hungry for the truth. And to hide it for those that had no interest. Did you guys know that parables can reveal truth in a special way that ordinary narrative language cannot. Did you know it's in symbolic language that God communicates some powerful truths? The book of Daniel and Revelation, are they books of symbols? Here's one that's oftentimes neglected, the Song of Solomon. Is that a book of symbols? Some people think it shouldn't even be in there. Sometimes when you read the Song of Solomon, you're like, why why is this in here, right? But it's actually a symbolic book that is helping us to understand something deep. So let's understand this parable in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, starting with verse 1. Let's read this together. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to what? Ten virgins who took their lamps went out to meet the who? Bridegroom. How many people here have been to a wedding? Raise your hand if you've been to a wedding. How many people here have been to at least ten weddings? Raise your hand. You've been to at least ten weddings. Filipino, you probably have, right? Anybody here? Ten weddings, raise your hand. Okay, how many people here have been to at least 15 weddings? Raise your hand. Are you guys raising your hand? Could you raise a little higher so everyone can see it? Right? Anybody here have been to 20 weddings? 20 weddings? Let me ask you a question. What is the common denominator? In all those weddings that you would say, this takes place every single time there's a wedding. What would you say that is? Anybody else? What would you say, this takes place every time there is a wedding. This always happens. Exchange of vows. Kissing. Commitment. Yes? Hold on a second. Hold on, what? Nobody's on time. Actually, you're right. The point I'm trying to bring out is this. Anytime Jesus gave a wedding parable, something went wrong. Can you name a wedding parable when something didn't go right? When everything went right? In fact, when Jesus went to a wedding, what happened? There's something inherent to all weddings. Something always goes wrong. In fact, when I was pastoring in series, one day I thought to myself, thought to myself, I'm going to be doing a, I'm going to coordinate this wedding. I'm going to make sure that this is going to be the wedding in which nothing goes wrong. I prepared so well for that wedding. Let me tell you something. It was the worst wedding I had ever done. <laughs> Inevitably, something happened at that wedding. What happened? They got married. Is your wife here? She better not be here, brother. (laughs) But something happened, right? Something always goes wrong. There's just something about wedding. When you're dealing with that amount of people and you're attempting to be organized, it's so difficult sometimes to keep things in line. So anytime Jesus describes a wedding parable, what happens? Invitations don't go out. People forgot to show up on time. Somebody didn't wear the right clothes. 
In fact, they ran out of, well, just grape juice at one wedding, right? Something always happens. So in this parable, something happens at this wedding, which is natural. Let's see what happens. Let's see what the Bible says. Now, five of them were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, he was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Let me ask you a question right now. I want you to think very deeply about this. What is the difference between the wise virgins and the foolish virgins? In fact, first, don't tell me the difference. Tell me all the things they have in common. Please raise your hand. What's all the things they have in common? They're all virgins. Very good. Anybody else? Don't interpret, by the way. I just want you to literally tell me what's happening in the parable. They're all waiting for the bridegroom. Anybody else? Hold on a second. Somebody's go ahead. They all have lamps. Anybody else? They all have oil in their lamps. Yes. What were you saying? Same. Okay, anybody else? What do they all have in common? They all slept. Very good. Anything else? What do they all have in common? They're numbers, right? And they seem to both move in groups, don't they? Very interesting point. Good. Anybody else? What do they all have in common? That's an interpretation. Okay, so before we get there, but good point. Hold on just a second. What do they all have in common? Both groups are waiting for the bridegroom. Anybody else? What do they all have in common? They were all invited. Very good. Anybody else? They were all women. That's, that's a good point. They all were women, right? <laughs> Maybe there's something there, right? <laughs> but good point. Very good point. What else? What do they all have in common? Yes. They all got the same call. Very good. I want you to look deeper. They were all single. That's, that's another one. What did you say? What do they all have in common? By the way, you can even look at the end of this parable and tell me what they all have in common. Don't tell me their differences yet. Tell me what they all have in common. They all woke up, woke up at the same time, right? Okay, anybody else? What do they all have in common? The entire parable, you can look at it. What do they all have in common? You ready for this one? They all had the same time. They all had the same opportunity. Let me take it a step further. They apparently all knew where to get the oil. What else do they have in common? What else do they all, what do they all have in common? They knew the bridegroom. By the way, the best way to do Bible study is when you're staring at a passage, you're thinking about it, hone in on keywords. Keywords. What's, what's happening in this right now? What's the key word here? What do they all have in common? 
Okay, they're all virgins. Anybody else? They all, you guys are now repeating things. That's, you know, when you reach the top, when you start there, someone's like, they're all women, right? They're all virgins. <laughs> it's like, and that was the first thing we talked about. Anybody else? What do they all have in common? They were not prepared. Okay. They all arose and trimmed their lamps. Okay. Some of you guys are repeating the same thing now in different word with different wording. Right? Right? They're not married, right? <laughs> Good one. Okay. I want you to tell me what they all have. What what's different about these two groups right now? Tell me what's different about these two groups. Hands should be going up for this one. What's different about these two groups? Okay, one was wise, one was foolish. How'd you know they were wise? How'd you know they were foolish? By their actions during a time of trial, right? That's how we know they're wise or foolish, right? Before that, there is no distinction that we can really see that they're wise or foolish. Anybody else? What's different between these two groups? What's different between the two groups, between the wise virgins and the foolish virgins? Just raise your hand. You tell me what's different about these two groups. Yes. Five took, well, they all took oil, right? But one group took more oil, right? Anybody else? What was it? One group started to beg the other group for oil, right? Anybody else? What's different about these two groups? You should know because God wasn't talking about people during the Reformation age or the early church. He was talking about this group of people. The people living at the end. He was talking about you guys. What's the difference between these two groups of people? Okay, five end up getting in, right? Conclusion. What else? What's different about these two groups of people? How they, how they use their time? Anybody else? Say it again. Wait, say it a little louder. Okay, that's interpretation. Before we get to interpretation, I want you to tell me what literally is the difference between these two. Go ahead. Anybody else? Even I'm getting bored right now, guys. What's the difference between these two groups of people? Let's think about that. Let's dig deep. I'm not afraid of silence. What's the difference between these two groups of people? Okay, five already, right? Let me ask you a question right now. Very interesting question, okay? What would you say is the fundamental reason why the foolish virgins were not ready? Raise your hand. What do you think is the number one reason? You say, this is the number one reason why they weren't ready. Raise your hand, yes. Say a little louder.
maybe they decided not, it wasn't necessary to prepare. Anybody else? Yes. They weren't watchful. Okay, anybody else? They took no oil with them. Anybody else? Yes. They got bored. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. They thought they were all ready. Interesting. Good point. Anybody else? Yes. They were just ready for a certain time. Very good. Anybody else? Yes. They thought they had all the time they needed. Anybody else? Yes. They all heard the cry. So what would you say is the fundamental reason, though, why they were not ready? How'd you do that? How'd you throw your voice over there? That's amazing. Go ahead. They were shorter on their what? Sure in their way? They didn't recognize? <laughs> what else do you think is a reason? They heard it, but they were foolish. So why were they foolish? Jay's help, JR is helping you out, but you're doing good though. You're on to something. You're on to something. What do you think could have prepared them for this event? How would they have known that they needed more oil? You tell me. Sure. Okay. You know, you have a very good point. Let me ask you a question. You're helping me. Do you think if they had studied out their lamps, they would have known they needed more oil? So if they would have actually looked at their lamp, they would have recognized. Let me ask you a question. What is the lamp in Scripture? So if they had studied their words, what, if they would, have, what would they have recognized about themselves? Bingo. Good job. We can end Sabbath school now with that. Good job. I'm serious about that. Do you hear that? Had they studied out their lamps, they would have recognized, wait a minute. We need more oil. They would have recognized their need. Friends, when we study out the word of God, do you know what starts happening? We start recognizing what? Our need of the spirit you know, many times I've heard sermons about sanctification. Have you heard sermons about sanctification? And then you know what you start feeling by the very end of that sermon? How far you are away from sanctification. But guess what? The very fact you recognize your need, what should that call you to do? Pray, thirst, and hunger for the Spirit of God. Can you say amen to that? You see, when you study your lamp, you start recognizing I'm low on oil. I need more of the Spirit of God. Amen? I need more of the Spirit of God. By the way, 
Was the market still open for them to go get oil at the time of the cry? It was still open because what did the wise virgins tell the foolish virgins? Go to those who sell. Let me ask you a question. What time of the day was it? It was still open. It was still open. So what's my point? It's still open today. It's still open today, right? Friends, we need to understand something about this parable that is so important. And that is this. We need to know whether or not we are low low on oil. And when we hear the word of God and we study the word of God, we start recognizing some things. But we shouldn't stop and say, you know what, well, I'm discouraged. I'm just not there. The very fact you recognize it should be sort of the place where you start asking yourself the question, where do I go then to get filled up? Right? To those who sell the oil. Anybody ever heard of the verse in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6? Anybody can quote it for me? Not by might, not by power, but by my what? Have you ever heard pastors, they're preaching, and they'll say in their prayers, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, right? Or perhaps you're praying with some people, and they're saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Or sometimes it's on a poster, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Or maybe it's on a wooden placard over your bed, right? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, right? We quote it so many times, but do you know the context of that? The context is this. Zechariah sees a vision of the candlestick, right? But do you know what is so unusual about that candlestick? Much different than any other candlestick he had ever seen before. There is one major difference of the candlestick that Zachariah saw in vision and the candlestick he had seen before leading up to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. One difference. There was no priest to light the candlestick and there was no priest sustaining the candlestick. In other words, when Zechariah was watching this candlestick, he was seeing a very supernatural source adding oil to the candlestick. And he was watching the candlestick as the supernatural source was sustaining the candlestick. And he's watching it, and then it's at that moment God says to him, it's not by might, not by power, but by my what? In other words, the Spirit of God is not man-originated, it is not man-sustained. Friends, the power that God wants to give to his people does not come from another human being. It comes from one place. God. And to get that, you have to only go to what? One place. Right? One place. Everybody take your Bibles. Let's go to the Gospel of John real quickly. The Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Excuse me, chapter 16. John chapter 16. Let's read verse 7. Jesus here is talking about the Holy Spirit. By the way, do you know what title he gave to the Holy Spirit? You 
know, he could have given the title, many different titles, right? The guider of truth, right? The convictor. He says he'll convict of truth. He'll guide you to all truth. But he didn't give it those titles. When he talked about the Holy Spirit, he gave him one title. The comforter. Amen? Look what the Bible says right here in verse 7. By the way, you know what's interesting? Another word for repent is comfort. They're tied together. Let's go to verse 7. Jesus, Jesus here is speaking. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I depart, I will send him to you. Let me ask you a question I've asked us in previous sermons. Hopefully you got it. What word appears there in this verse more than any other words? Raise your hand. Verse 7. What word appears there more than any other time? One more time. What word appears there more than any other time than any other words? It is I. Good job. Right? If it's Bible truth, believe it, right? Even when I make you question it, right? One time when I was preaching, by the way, I asked this at my church. I'm like, what is Jesus? Somebody says, he's the high priest. And I walked up to him just like I did to you. And I'm like, are you sure about that? And he's like, actually, I'm not sure anymore. (laughs) If it's in the Bible, you believe it, hold to that. Amen? So what word appears there more than any other words in that verse? Are you sure? Yes, all you need to do is count, right? Who's I? Jesus, right? Okay, this is not going to be hard, okay? What word appears there next the most amount number of times? You. Who's you? No. Who was he speaking to? And who are the disciples? You are. Very good, right? So I is who? And who's you? The disciples. And who are the disciples? You are. Don't miss this point, okay? Here Jesus is talking about bringing the Holy Spirit to who? And who are the disciples? You are, right? Oh, this is going somewhere. You say it better be, right? Let's keep going with this. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to who? And who are the disciples? Let's continue reading. And when he has come, who is he coming to? No, no. Let's start with verse 7 one more time, okay? If I, the, if I, wait, it says, Nevertheless, to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Who's you? The disciples, right? Who's I? If you get this wrong one more time. Jesus, okay? Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to who? And who are the disciples? Very good. Let's read verse 8. When he has come, who's he coming to? Uh, no, 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 no. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to who? And who are the disciples? That's verse 7, right? Verse 8. And when he has come, who's he coming to? Can we get the appeal music up and let's end this sermon? He's coming to the disciples. Who are the disciples? Notice this. When he has come, who's he coming to? When he has come, he will convict the world. You missed it, didn't you? It doesn't say when the Spirit of God comes upon the world. 
the world will be convicted. It says, when the Spirit of God comes on who? And who are the disciples? You. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, the what will be convicted? The world will be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know, one day when I was becoming a Seventh-day Adventist, I was so bothered with this question, how is the gospel going to go out to the entire world? How is the work going to be finished? And I never forgot, I went to my, this potluck, I call it potluck the second service, and I went to the second service, and uh, I was talking to different people, and I said, okay, how do you think the gospel is going to go to the entire world? How will the church be revived? Somebody says these words. They said these words. Well, when the pastor gets off their behind and starts working, then the work is going to be finished. I thought, one person who's already overworked, overtaxed, and almost on the border of insanity, the pastor, you want them to do even more work. And now the end of the world will come place. I, I, I just, I'm struggling with how the great controversy climaxes on this one issue. Pastors need to work. I think it's in the last chapter of the book, Great Controversy, right? The pastors need to do more work. When they do, the end will come, right? Have you read that before? I haven't either. So I went to somebody else and I said, how is the work going to be finished? And they said, well, okay, this is what's going to happen. When we only start singing hymns in the church. And I said, singing hymns in the church. Yes. I said, I thought we were already singing only hymns in the church. And they said, well, when we change this, then the end will come. Now, I'm not saying music is an issue. All I'm simply saying is, when I'm reading the great controversy, or I'm looking at the last book of the Bible, I'm not seeing the great controversy climaxing on this one thing, and the church is finally, you know, uh, just energized to take the gospel to the entire... I'm not reading that. Friends, when I'm looking at the scripture, when Jesus says, when he comes... Who's he? When the Spirit comes upon who? The disciples. And who are the disciples? What will be the result? The world will be convicted. Friends, we have been waiting for the second coming of Jesus, but guess what? The second coming of Jesus will not take place unless the second coming of the Holy Spirit happens first. God wants to pour out His Spirit upon a languishing church. And if they accept it and begin to yearn for it and pray for this supernatural power, they will have an edge in their work that nothing in the world can rival. In fact, do you want to know that one of the ways that we can obtain the power of the Spirit is not just by individual prayer, but by corporate prayer. Have you noticed in the parable that when they are talking, they often talk in plural terms? We don't have any. Go over there, you guys. Well, I didn't say you guys, but you get this plurality that's used. You know, Ellen White says something amazing. She says these words, the promise is made on condition that the united prayers of the church are offered. Notice this. And in answer to these prayers, there may be expected a power greater than that which comes from private prayer. Friends, do you want to know corporate prayer is a powerful thing? Do you know the minimum qualification for corporate prayer? Who dares raise their hand right now? 
who will raise their hand? What is the minimum qualification for corporate prayer? Raise your hand if you know the answer. In other words, somebody other than yourself. That is the minimum qualification for corporate prayer. Friends, are you listening to what is being said right here? There may be expected a power greater than that of just mere private prayer. One of the reasons why I believe people fall away is they stop fellowshipping with like believers. It's not just, oh, they're not doing their devotions anymore, or they're just, you know, they're not, you know, praying on their own. I really believe that they're actually disconnecting themselves from fellowship with like believers, and they are excluding themselves from a special blessing. Friends, there is power when God's people are praying together for the Spirit of God. That's why when I'm looking at the parable of the ten virgins, I'm starting to see more and more of this groupthink that is existing. Jesus didn't just say a foolish virgin or a wise virgin. He put them in groups because apparently their actions are very similar that they could be labeled this way. So the question is, what group are you a part of? The foolish ones? Or the wise ones. You see, friends, right now the store is still open. Amen? The store is still open to get the oil. And if we will take time to pray and ask the Lord for his blessing, he will give it. Let me share something with you. Do you know what the problem with Laodicea is? I'm going to tell you right now, the problem with Laodicea is not the problems of Laodicea. What did you just say? Let me say it one more time, Anel. The problem with Laodicea is not the problems of Laodicea. Did you get it? Let me say it one more time. The problems of Laodicea, the problem of Laodicea is not the problems of Laodicea. The problem of the Laodicea church is that it's seeing that it doesn't have any problems. It's pretending it doesn't have problems. You see, friends, God can deal with the problems of Laodicea, but he can't deal with that one problem that says, I don't got any problems. I don't have any real need. Friends, right now, God wants us to pray for the Spirit of God. I believe that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I want to end with this quote. We're finishing up Sabbath school right now. When the third angel's message shall go forth with a loud voice, the whole earth shall be lighted with his glory. The Holy Spirit is poured about on his people. The revenue of glory has been accumulating for this closing work of the third angel's message. The prayers that have been ascending for the fulfillment of the promise. The descent of the Holy Spirit. Not one has been lost. Each prayer has been accumulating, ready to overflow and pour forth a healing flood of heavenly influence and accumulated light all over the world. Let me ask you a question. What does the word accumulation mean? Someone said it. What is it? Build up on each other? Very good, right? Kind of you would think of like a bank, right? You're adding to. Notice what it said here. It's so powerful. The prayers of the Holy Spirit have been accumulating. Do you know when this quotation was written? About a hundred years ago. Now just think about that. Ellen White wasn't the first person in the early church, weren't the first people praying for the descent of the latter rain. Did you know that? 
did you know that the prayers for the Holy Spirit have been descending or ascending since the time of Jesus? Did you know that the early church did not see a complete fulfillment of the latter reign, of the reign that God promised? What am I trying to say to you? That God is waiting for a generation to pour forth this accumulated blessings. You could be the recipient of the pioneers of the church. Their prayers. You could be the recipient of the prayers of the reformers. You can be the recipient of the prayers of the early church. And of Jesus himself. Friends, God has been accumulating all this. Not one single prayer has been lost. They're all stored up in heaven. And God is waiting to unleash a heaven full of blessings. I believe this is a time for us to pray, don't you? A time for us to pray and say, Lord, we want the Holy Spirit. We want the latter rain. And we're going to do what God calls us to do. We are going to pray together in groups. Amen? So what we're going to do right now is we're going to pray together in groups of three to five people. So turn to three to five people right now. And friends, here's a few principles as we are praying together. No, number one, don't be a Donnie dominator. Amen? Don't be a silent Susie either. Keep your prayers short, sweet, and simple, and full of faith. Right? So let's pray together in groups right now. Find people. Don't let any two people pray by themselves. You need to be in groups of four or five, right? Three to five people right there. All right. I need somebody to pray with my brother and his friend right here. They're alone. So we need people right over here. All right. We got some people right there. Friends, let's pray together. Let's ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask for latter rain power. Let's ask for that heavenly oil right now. Anywhere from three to five people. If you're alone, you can raise your hand. If you don't want to raise your hand, stay where you're at. We will send people to you. And let's pray. Let's ask God, pour out your Holy Spirit. Let's our hearts pray and ask for God to bring the Spirit of God upon us. To revive us. To give us that power. Let's claim those promises as we are praying for the Holy Spirit. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.